0: Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tillery Community Church. Hey TCC, my name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. And this is going to be our main passage today as we continue with our sermon series on the five solas. And today we are looking at sola gratia, grace alone. You know, I hope that you found, as we've been walking through these solas, that this is not some empty doctrinal statements for us. These are not just truth claims to be known, but truth that transforms, that enlivens, that sets us free. In preparation for this Sunday through the week, I found in myself a real need to be reminded of the truth that it is by grace alone— And that reminder was rejuvenating and comforting and edifying to my soul when I found myself in kind of a dark place. So I hope that the truth of these doctrines would edify you and that the Spirit of God would speak to us today by His Word. So let's go to His Word, Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, I love this time of year. The weather has finally cooled and we're getting some of that crisp air. My wife and I spent some time out by our fire pit and it was lovely. And not just because of the weather, but also because the mosquitoes were noticeably and thankfully absent. The mosquitoes have just been terrible, haven't they? And just a couple of weeks ago, we had mosquitoes buzzing around our offices. And at our staff meeting, one of our staff members, I'm not going to say who, but one of our staff members saw a mosquito buzzing around and without hesitation, squashed it dead. Extinguished the life of this creature. And do you know what the rest of the staff did? They applauded. They said, good job, way to go. Now, it is unclear if anyone on our staff was personally bitten by that mosquito. There was no trial. There was no evaluation of the mosquito's moral character. The mosquito was killed for no other reason than the fact that it was a mosquito in our presence. Now, we have a good relationship with the Tulare Police Department, so I reached out to them. But as some of you are probably aware, it's perfectly legal to kill a mosquito for being a mosquito. But just because something is legal doesn't mean it's moral. We know that. We see that. For instance, there's nothing illegal about adultery, but we don't regard it as moral. It's legal to kill a mosquito for being a mosquito. But is it moral? If I were to ask this cold-blooded killer to justify their actions, if I were to ask them, why did you kill that mosquito, what do you think the answer would be? Well, most likely, I think the answer I'd get back would be something like, because it's a mosquito. Now, that answer as a justification is really pointing us to two things, one directly and one indirectly. Directly, it's pointing us to the nature of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes spread disease, malaria, Zika. In fact, mosquitoes kill more human beings than any other creature. But mosquitoes are also just pests. They bite and annoy and infest. And that mosquito, whether it had bitten anyone or not, would have done so if it were permitted to live because that is what mosquitoes do. That is the nature of a mosquito. So that's the first justification for the mosquito's death, the nature of mosquitoes. The second indirect justification is the nature of man that we, by our very nature, have authority to subdue creation, that the rest of creation is under us, that we are, by nature, of greater value and greater worth. So whenever there is conflict, if the rest of creation ever is an affront to us, our desires, preferences, and interests supersede theirs. What we point to, inevitably, to justify killing a mosquito is nature. The nature of a mosquito and the nature of man. And we could probe far deeper into that justification in philosophical and theological terms. Obviously, not all humans agree on that. But the reason that I bring this up is because our passage says something very discomforting and unsettling about the nature of man. And it needs to be understood if we're going to understand grace. It's right there at the beginning, the opening verse. Let's look at that one again. Verse 1. We are by nature objects of wrath, children of wrath, deserving of wrath. The biblical claim is that we have a fallen nature. We have a sin nature. We are by nature disobedient. And all of us, at one time or another, have followed our nature and have done things in accordance with our sinful nature. The Bible declares that all have sinned and that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's what the Bible says. We are by nature an affront to God. We have a conflict with God. We are an affront to God by what we have done and by what we do and by what we are in our nature, in our natural selves. And just as we have authority over mosquitoes, God has authority over us. His nature is greater than our nature. He is, by nature, of greater value and greater worth. And so God has every legal and moral right to strike us dead and cast us to hell. In fact, that's what we deserve. Because the conflict between God's nature and our nature is not a trivial matter, like an itch from a bug bite is. No, the conflict between God's nature and our nature is between good and evil itself. God in his nature is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly good. And we in our nature are not. We in our nature are disobedient and antagonistic toward God, which means we are in conflict with holiness and godliness and goodness. And that is important for us to understand because the problem that we have isn't just behavioral. It's not just that we do bad things, though we do. It's that our hearts are inclined away from God. Our souls are bent and crooked toward evil. And so the problem is not just about what we do. It's about what we are. It's our nature. And so we need more than just behavioral modification. We need a new heart. We need a new life. And that's what God promises us. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. It says in Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. You know, we had a couple of baptisms in our service today, and that's a sacrament with very potent imagery, capturing this idea of dying to our former selves, being buried, and rising to our new selves in Christ. Romans 6 says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Colossians. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Death To life being born again that's what jesus says we have to be john chapter 3 jesus replied very truly i tell you no one can see the kingdom of god unless they are born again we need new life and a new heart and to be born again as a new creation because there is something fundamentally wrong with our old nature Something wrong with our heart and our old life. Our old selves were objects of wrath, and we were dead in our transgressions. Our natural selves deserved wrath. By our nature, we deserve hell. That's the implication. Verse 8 in our passage. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Forget about the means of saving for a second, and just notice that first implication. You've been saved. Saved from what? You need saving? What do you need saving for? What are you being saved from? The reason that we call Jesus our Savior is because he saves us from something. He is saving us from hell. We are saved from what we deserve. We deserve wrath, but we are saved from wrath. What we receive then is definitionally grace. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. It is, as our pastor says, a gift of God. We can't understand or recognize or even comprehend grace at all unless we see that it's undeserved, because that's grace by definition. Not only can we not earn our salvation, we don't even deserve our salvation. And that's what we mean by sola gratia. We do not earn our salvation. It is only by grace alone. And I hope you see just how impossible it is to earn our salvation. Earning our salvation would mean that it's about what we do. But the problem is deeper than that, as our passage indicates. The problem is not just what we do, but what we are in our fallen nature. And we have as much power to change our nature as the mosquito can change its nature. We are dead in our transgressions. We are by nature deserving of wrath. Now, maybe you hear that and think... I don't agree with that. I'm not saying that I'm perfect, that I've lived a perfect life, but I'm not that bad. And you may say, I'm a good person, and I haven't been born again. I'm not a Christian, but I'm a good person. I I don't commit crimes. I try to be honest. I try to be kind to people. I give to charity. I did one of those Operation Christmas shoebox things. I do a lot of good things. I am a good person. And you're telling me that I'm totally wicked and depraved by nature? I don't see that. I'm a good person, and I do good things. Well, I don't deny that compared to others, you can stack up pretty well. And it's not that we can't do good. We do good things. We do. The Christian claim is not that we can't do good. It's that we can't do good absent the grace of God. And whether you're a believer or not, God's grace is still over you. I mean, the fact that he doesn't strike us dead right on the spot is an example of his grace. Our very life and breath is only sustained by his grace. We literally can't do anything apart from his grace. But his grace and his kindness is far more than that. In fact, from the very moment that man sinned, from the very moment that we fell and our nature became twisted, he pursued us in his grace. The reason that we can do good things is because God in his nature, in his grace, impresses upon us his nature. It's like training a pet. Uh, You can teach a dog to shake hands, but dogs in their nature don't shake hands. That's not what they do. Human beings shake hands to greet. And so, in training that dog, we are impressing upon it our nature. Or let me give you another example. Because the way in which God impresses upon us his nature might be harder for us to see. So let me put it this way. I am a person who is uh, bad at language. I grew up in Japan, spent many years there. I don't speak a lick of it. I took four years of Spanish, two in high school and two in college. Please don't speak to me in Spanish. Language is not something that comes naturally to me. And yet, I'm fluid in English. I speak English, I read English, I think in English, and so I could easily mistakenly think that English is intrinsic to me, that it's written on my DNA or something, but it's not. It was impressed upon me, and the way that it was taught to me was in a way that I didn't even notice I was learning it. I began to think and process and speak in English because my father and mother spoke it to me. And similarly, God our Father impresses his nature on us by speaking to us. That's why he gives us his word. That's why he gives us the law. That's why he gives us a conscience. It says in Romans, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This sense we have of objective morality, of real right and wrong, is God writing on our hearts, speaking to us, impressing His nature on us, so even the good that we may do is only by God's grace, by His nature, not ours. And if we can't even do good apart from God's grace, then we certainly can't earn our salvation. In fact, the very reason God impresses upon us his nature is not to save us. It's so that we will recognize that we need saving. He impresses on us his righteousness to show our unrighteousness. He shows what straight is so that we can see we're crooked. It says in Romans, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death, for sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful." See, in order for us to see grace as grace, for us to even understand the concept of grace, we have to see that we don't deserve it. And so God impresses upon us his nature, not so that we can earn our salvation, but to show us that we can't. He shows us what is good, teaches us how to be good, to demonstrate that we're not, that we always come up short. Behavioral modification will never be good enough because the problem is deeper. We are dead in our transgressions. We need new life. And that new life comes to us by grace alone, as our passage makes clear. Verse 4. When we are saved by grace through faith, we are justified before God, forgiven of our sins, and the Holy Spirit indwells us to sanctify us, to grow us into a new creation. It doesn't happen all at once. Sanctification is a process. And as we are transformed to be more and more like Jesus, we become more and more aware of our own depravity and more and more aware of the depths and riches of His grace. You cannot look at the face of Christ and not see grace. And seeing that changes our lives. Look at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're saved by grace and not good works, but grace leads us to do good works. Why? Well, here's why. Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner." Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Grace leads us to love. It goes in no other direction. To love God and to love what he loves. That's our motive for these Christmas boxes. That's our motive for our Thanksgiving outreach. That's our motive for every good work. Grace leads us to love. Grace also leads us to humility. Verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast you know i was disheartened by the recent elections uh, particularly as it came to abortion proposition 1 enshrining abortion in our constitution passed in california but what really got me was a montana referendum number 131 which would have required medical care to be provided to infants who are born alive including after an attempted abortion But the citizens of Montana said no to that proposal. And morally and theologically, I think that's evil. I do. I think it's utterly depraved. And I wanted the wrath of God to just be unleashed. Now, I do think we should call out sin. I think that's a loving thing to do. But in my heart, I wasn't loving well. So how do we love well in the face of evil and the reality of depravity? It's by recognizing that we're no different, that we are saved by grace. If you measure yourself by others, you might come off pretty well. But Jesus tells us a story. I've shared this passage a lot, but it's important for us to hear. Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. That we are recipients of grace leads us to humility. But maybe pride isn't your problem. Maybe you have no issue accepting or believing that you are totally depraved. In fact, that comes as no surprise to you. You hear that, that you are by nature deserving of wrath, and and that sounds just about right to you, because you're a screw-up, and you're a failure, and you're no good, and you just can't seem to do anything right. But what does the Word say? But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. God is gracious to us because he loves us. Grace doesn't just show us our failures, it shows us that we're loved. If you look outwardly, you may see the faults of others. If you look inwardly, you may see yours. But you'll never see grace because you won't see Christ. If you look to Christ, you will see the fallenness of man. If you look to Christ, you will see your faults and your failures. But through him, we see the richness of his mercy, the greatness of his love, and the depth of his grace. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.